From Relay FM, this is Upgrade, episode 145. Today's show is brought to you by Encapsula, Blue Apron, and MailRoute. My name is Mike Hurley, and I am joined back over the Skype waves by Mr. Jason Snell. Present. Hi, Mr. Jason Snell. <laughs> Hi. Jason, Kevin would like to know, did you drive to San Jose in your Nissan Leaf? I did not. Uh-huh. I took I took a gas gasoline car. In fact, I took the minivan to San Jose and because uh, it's got all the range in the world. And San Jose was, again, I kind of wanted to drive the Leaf to San Jose just for the challenge of it. Mm-hmm. And one of these days I'm going to do it where I'm going to drive that car somewhere that I don't need to go just to see how far I can drive it. But I decided there was too much else going on. And then I was also giving Dan Morin a ride down and I didn't want to like, you know, subject him to my insanity of the, the, you know, eco mode of the leaf to see if I could max out the range and things like that. So I just, I, uh, I left that for, for my wife to commute in and we took the, took the, the gas car down. Pull Nissan. It's fine. It's, 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 uh, you know, it specializes on, on short trips. Okay. But Kevin did want to know, then what is the furthest you have driven it, if not to San Jose? I looked it up. I think the furthest that we've driven the car is the 42 miles that I drove it from the dealership in Santa Rosa to my house. (laughs) Um, But I have driven it twice to Petaluma, which is probably 35 miles away. Um, to Twit, which I, I, I was the guest host on Twit yesterday. Because yeah, Leo Laporte is frolicking in the Galapagos with turtles and things, and uh, they, there is a, a a charger, a level two charger, across the street from the Twit offices in this office park. So I drove up there, plugged in, walked across the street to Twit, and then plugged back, you know, unplugged and drove home uh, with uh, with mileage to spare. So I've done that a couple of times now, and that that totally works. Because with these electric cars, there's sort of two, there's two different ranges. There's the range of what you can just drive all the way out there and all the way back home without plugging in, and then there's the range where you drive somewhere, find a charging station, plug in, do what you're doing out there, and then are able to drive home. And obviously, that's a longer range. If I went to San Jose, that's what it would have been. There you go. Thank you, Kevin, for your hashtag Snell Talk question. If you have a question you would like to open an episode of Upgrade, tweet it with the hashtag Snell Talk, and it will go into a spreadsheet uh, for mm. my choosing. Casey List was very upset with me because I hadn't asked a Snell Talk question that he had, uh, but I didn't think that it was interesting enough, so it will never get asked. So I will invite Casey to try again. Um, he was talking about some kind of university thing. It, it really wasn't a very interesting question. The short, the short version. I'm going to answer Casey's question, which is. Oh, I th- forgot you were there. Otherwise, I wouldn't have brought it up. <laughs> why am I? Why am I? I think I answered it to him, but just for everybody, why am I a, 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 a? Why do I have loyalty to the University of California at Berkeley? And the answer is, my dad went to the University of California at Berkeley. Um, I went to football games there from when I was a little kid. We still have the football season tickets that used to be my parents. It's, my wife and I now have those, and uh, I did go to graduate school there too. So it is a it is a family thing from when I was a kid, and that's why I am a Cal fan, despite that it's like being the Cubs, a Cubs fan before they won the World Series. It's a it's not a, a team 
to be a fan of and I am and that's just how it is that's part, it's part of the part of part of life part of a personality Casey is a Virginia Tech fan so because I never trust Casey's questions because I feel like he's trying to trick me into goading you into something like that you know like why are you a Cal fan like with the implication of because Cal sucks right so I never you know I can't trust him he's well he's not wrong okay. um, and, and, yeah it, it's uh also the 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 cow logo is a script cow and uh i wear cow apparel from time to time and i remember i was on the east coast i was visiting boston and i was having dinner with rich siegel the author of bb edit and he looked at my shirt my cow shirt and said who is cow and why did you steal his shirt which i thought was funny like it's a little monogrammed like some guy named cow Right. Well, this was part anyway. of the reason I never asked the question in the first place because I couldn't understand it. He just says, yeah, "Why well, does why does Jason like Cal?" And I'm like, "Who's Cal?" Yeah. So I didn't ask. Yeah. The who is he, and why why is he so magnetic? Yeah. Anyway, so sometime in the fall, you'll be you'll be in the Bay Area, and um, I will subject you to American college football, and you will see the spectacle, and then you will understand, or you won't understand. I don't know. I took on Jay Tomich to a college football game when he was out here and i got to expose all of all of essentially all of slovenia's uh tech journalism to college football in america it's a service you provide it is an occasional service i provide and that is snell talk lays this way too soon to this week so we're back all from right, wwdc we're a week removed from the keynote and i just wanted to get a sense from you jason kind of what your feeling about san jose wwdc was like like what you thought san jose was like as a as a host of the conference i thought it was great i yeah. i really liked the the vibe of it i thought the I mean, it's it's different, so it takes some getting used to. Sure, but let's let's see. Like getting there wasn't a problem. There was parking. Um, one day I actually parked on the street. I mean, there was parking. Um, there were uh, lots of different venues, but it was all walkable. At one point, um, I was looking for. Uh, I was with Dan Morin and David Sparks, and we were looking for some place to have dinner. And we found, you know, we were just sort of wandering, and we ended up walking for quite a ways, but. I looked on a map and it looked like it was a million miles away to where we walked, but it it wasn't because the scale of downtown San Jose is not particularly uh, huge. Like no. you, it's all walkable. There's lots of restaurants. It is kind of one of those places that feels like there's um, it's geared more for people during the day than it is in the evening. But the fact was there were so many evening events that it was pretty lively, I think, even in the evening. And you just keep running into people. Like, blocks away from the convention center, you would see people you knew. So it was like, it really was like what we thought it might be, where you kind of took over the downtown for the for the week. And, uh, and that felt good. And San Francisco never really felt like that. So, um, and personally for me, even though it's inconvenient to drive all that way, um, it was much more kind of pleasant to be there and to hang around there than it was in San Francisco where, you know, I don't know, there, it's just so dense and so much else going on and kind of hard to get from place to place and everything is packed. And that was my take on it. What was your take? I loved it. Uh, I, I hope they never go back to San Francisco. I hate downtown San Francisco. The area around Moscone that we have been at for the last four or five years, like that I've been going there, I've just come to really not enjoy it. Like It's just not a very nice area. There are very nice parts of San Francisco. The Moscone Center is not one of them. <laughs> that The area around there is just not... It doesn't give me anything. I don't, I don't really enjoy it. Like... 
San Jose does have less food options and stuff like that, and as you said, less bar options and stuff, but I got by fine. I you know, like everything I needed was there. Plus, it was really nice, and the weather was fantastic. I could walk around in t-shirt and shorts every oh, day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it, w- it was just lovely. It was really, really nice. It had more personality to it in its own little way. And as you say, it felt much nicer as an attendee or somebody coming into town for that time because it just felt like WWDC had just taken over, like the Apple community just t- descended upon the town because it feels like that area is not really used for very much other than like people attending yeah. the ex- like the com- the convention center because there were like a couple of hotels that, that were all clustered together and then a bunch of food places. So it really felt like the... It really just felt like it, everything was ours and it was great. I loved it. And also, I have a voice. Which is great. <laughs> that is the benefit of there not being so many bars and stuff open at night. Meant that people were either hanging out in the hotel or like what I did a few nights, which is having a bunch of people in our hotel room and just like we had like a living area, seating area in our hotel room. You could have like eight or nine people in there and it was totally fine. So that was just a thing that I did at a couple of occasions as well. And that was really lovely because I got to spend all the time with the people I wanted to spend time with and also keep my voice. It was great. And there were more like meetups and stuff that, to go to this year so I could see a bunch of people. It was great. I, I really, really, really loved it. Um, and I hope that it is there for the foreseeable future. Yeah, and there were places like, uh, to talk about, I mean, there is a, definitely a WWDC bar, bar culture that I'm not really a part of. But um, but I also found like there are a lot of places. Like I, I, one night we hung out in the in the Fairmont hotel mm-hmm. lobby, basically. And yep. there's a bar there and people were having drinks if they wanted to. Yeah, and exactly. but it was a, it was a large space with comfortable seating and things like that. So it's different, but there, you know, it, it is geared. That area has built up to handle conventions that can fit in the convention center, right? It is, it is made for that. And so it's got enough to handle all of that. And, and yeah, it, it, it doesn't have, the feel of like, wow, we're in San Francisco, which I would argue feels a little bit like, wow, we're in Chicago or wow, we're in, in New York, where there's a real sense of place. In San Jose, it feels like we're in a city that is a, you know, a middle-sized city. It's not a super dense yeah. city. And uh, and so there's not that sense of like, I can't believe we're we're in San Jose, right? But it doesn't matter. Like, it, 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 who cares? It was yeah. a pleasant place to do it, and I think that's uh, I think that's more important. I, I, ironically, is this irony? Okay, I'm not going to say ironically. I withdraw my is comment this of like irony. Alanis Morissette irony. <laughs> It could be. Could be. Um, it did rain on Thursday <laughs> on in the wedding June day. in San Francisco, <laughs> which I'm sure somebody was getting married and it was bad for them, <laughs> don't you think? But uh, <laughs> uh, I think Steve Jobs moved WWDC to, to San Francisco because he wanted he wanted Apple to appear more big time at a time when Apple wasn't being taken yeah. as seriously as he wanted it to be, and he wanted it to be like, no, we're not we're not minor league. We're going to take over San Francisco. I think it helped, and I think it especially helped with all the iPhone stuff as well, right? 
And that's why they did all those events up there. They moved WWC up there. They did the events in Moscone. They did the events in Yerba Buena. Uh, then they did the uh, the last couple of keynotes at the Bill Graham Civic Auditorium. But I think Apple in its current status doesn't need to do that, right? Apple can go to San Jose and, it, and it's going to take it over and people will still come because it's Apple. Yep. And now it's more like it's at their home court, basically, because it's, it's a lot closer to go to San Jose than it yep. is to San Francisco. So, and now all their press yeah. events are going to be on campus as well, right? Like They're just like, we don't need this anymore. I would assume that all all the press events are going to be yeah. in that new Steve Jobs Theater. So, yeah, it's. Uh, I thought it was great. I thought it was successful. I, I, I hope they will continue as far as I, I've not heard anything to dissuade me from the belief that uh, future WWDCs will be in San Jose. Sometimes people ask, like, well, if they have it in San Jose, would they have it somewhere else? The thing is, though, that WWDC, like, Apple employees really participate in it. They're all over that event. And so yeah. they're not going to do a road show, I think. It's San Jose is close to yep. the campus. It's the right place for them to do it. The movement to San Jose doesn't mean that it's a ro- like it's about to go on tour. Like, if, if they did it in New York this year, you could be like, well, maybe they'll do it in London, right? But, like, no, they, they just did it somewhere that was physically closer to their office. Yeah. Yeah, for those who don't know Bay Area geography, it's quite a bit. It's quite a bit closer. It's like it's quite a bit closer to Apple. Mm-hmm. Great all round, big fan. So I uh, look forward to going back to San Jose next year. Yeah, and and next year we'll have the benefit of knowing more about the area. That yep. was one of those things. Like we did the we did the um the relay meetup, and it was really lovely at the at the um quilt Quilton museum. textiles museum. Yep. But uh, it was that was and and we heard from a lot of people who wanted to be there and couldn't because it was a fairly small venue. Yep. And you know our reasoning was in part just that we hadn't seen the we didn't know if people would come to WWC. We hadn't seen any of the venues. It was pretty risky to put on an event sight unseen at all. And everybody you know sort of took that risk. Credit to John Gruber for getting the California theater and selling it out basically yep. for the for the talk show live. But next year everybody's gonna have a much better idea about how it works. And I think it will be more of a of a well oiled machine. I think I think with a couple of years, WWDC in San Jose could actually become incredible because everybody and that doesn't just mean the people who go and the people who plan events, but it also means the people in the services in San Jose, the hotels and all that, I think everybody's going to get a better sense of like, oh, I see what this is now. Yeah. And they, they you know, yes, they may raise their prices. That may, that may happen. happen. But <laughs> I think, but, but I think there's enough, you know, there's enough flexibility there that, oh, that, that yeah. it'll be a little bit, it'll be a little bit harder for them to do what maybe the San Francisco hotels did. But I think in, in general, everybody's going to get a better sense and it could actually become pretty incredible as uh, as time goes on to like take that place over for a week. Yeah, I think that bars and restaurants will understand a little bit better like what they're supposed to be doing, you know? Like Right, who are who are the nerds? Why are they here? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I don't know what this is all about and but I think it's it's going to change. There was this coffee shop called uh, Social Policy which was fantastic, but that place was just like completely overrun. <laughs> the yeah, it was it was really nice. I spent some time in a in another cafe that was just sort of like a block away that was uh that was really good that was a like a Oh cool. Um yeah, I, I forget the name of it now, but it was like a ta- an Italian name. It was very very nice two level cafe 
And uh, I, I hung out there for a few hours that I more people were basically taken over the upstairs and were using it as their base of operations. But I think, yeah, I think people will get it. There was also a perception from a lot of people. This is something that I know that some people ran into that that this was an Apple event through and through. And yeah. so there was some confusion among the people like running the venues and all of that. They're like, oh, you're with Apple. This is all part of Apple's thing. It's like, no, we're not with Apple. We're kind of like independent on the outside. And so hopefully that education will happen too, because, you know, that, that that it, it gets a little weird when they're like, oh, well, you're with Apple. You're with a billion dollar company. You're worth, you know, you can billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, so this shouldn't be a problem. It's like, no, no, we're a podcast network. We have, we're, we're tiny. We're not Apple. And uh, hopefully that education process will go on too. So they'll understand that there's, there's sort of like the main event and then there's all the ancillary events. So WebRTC is coming to Safari. This is something that you've yeah. been excited about for a while. Uh, why is this important to you? And, and kind of, is it coming to iOS as well as on the Mac? It's funny. I um, I have written about this. So WebRTC is this set of extensions for web browsers. And it's in Chrome and Firefox. And it's real-time communication. And the idea is you should be able to do audio and video conferencing and other applications that use audio and video streams primarily. Um, for without a plugin, like you shouldn't need Flash, you shouldn't need Silverlight. You should just be able to do this. So if you open a Google Hangout in Chrome, it doesn't need a plugin. It does on Safari, but it doesn't need a plugin, I believe, on Chrome because it's using WebRTC. And uh, the the most the best example I can give is that there are these two apps, Zencaster and uh, Cast, that are podcasting apps. And they only work with Chrome and Firefox because they're using the WebRTC protocols. But what it means is you don't need a plug-in. You just use their, use their site in the browser and you can hear other people and record and uh, it creates a whole like podcast studio inside mm-hmm. of web browser. It's pretty cool. So I've written about this a little bit. We've talked about it a little bit. I had somebody come up to me as I was walking out of the talk show live out of the California theater who was from Apple who said, WebRTC, it's it. Did you hear it's in the, it's in the, the, the new Safari. It's in the betas. Um, so I guess somebody was paying attention to these things I've been writing, um, which is nice. So, uh, enough to tell me not enough to like, it's not like they, I asked and they did it. It's more like they knew I was complaining and they like, okay, finally you can stop complaining now. Um, my understanding is that this is in, uh, Mac OS and iOS. And my understanding from talking to some uh, web developers is that Apple's, in, the, how is it phrased to me? Apple's interpretation of the WebRTC specification is slightly different from Google's interpretation of WebRTC as implemented in Chrome. So my understanding is this isn't one of those things where one of these web app developers like Cast or Zencaster can just sort of turn off the browser detection for Safari and say, Safari, hooray, you can now use our tool. Mm-hmm. I think they have to um I think they have to do some work. I also saw a tweet from the Zencaster developers saying that their their approach on iOS is probably going to just be to build an app because that's the other way to do it. But um but what in the long run what this is going to probably mean is that Apps that use WebRTC, including my podcast apps that I'm excited about, but also all sorts of other applications that currently only work on Chrome because they're using these features, um, will be supported in Safari on the Mac. And I believe that's going to be for 
High Sierra, Sierra, and El Capitan, I think they go three versions back when they do Safari updates. Um, so I think it'll it'll actually roll back a couple of versions. And in iOS 11, it should be there. And if it's in iOS 11, and these apps get updated to work with it, it's a big deal. Because that means, say, uh, sometimes I have these incomparable podcasts where Dan Morin is like in a... They release a new Star Wars trailer, and Dan is at a convention somewhere, and we want to do a Star Wars trailer podcast. And he's on an iPhone, and it's like, he, he's just going to sound terrible because we can't record him. Um, we're going to be able to do that, right? We will be able to all go to a, a link and he'll be able to go there on his phone and we'll record the podcast and it'll record his microphone and upload that recording in the background to us so that we can make a good sounding podcast. That's pretty awesome. And that's the promise here. So this may be the first uh, crack in the wall in terms of being able to really legitimately do um, good sounding podcasts entirely on iOS that include multiple people and multiple yeah. platforms yeah. and all of those caveats. So so it's great. And plus, it means that Safari is a more complete web citizen and you don't end up in these situations, which I hate when I get in there because I'm a Safari user, where I get to a, a site and they say, oh, you need to use Chrome for this. I keep Chrome around for like three or four specific reasons, and I would prefer not to. Yeah, I mean, I still use it as my web browser, right, Chrome. I do, but I would like to be able to have the flexibility on iOS to eventually record podcasts in a pinch, right, with a USB microphone and an and a yeah. adapter, right? That That's what I find interesting about this. It's what I hope it means it gets implemented at some point. It sounds like iOS 11 may give us that, even if, even if it is not what we would prefer to do, right, because there are other issues going on, just the fact that it will be, if it's capable of doing it, that means in a pinch... Or if you are on, like for me, it's a lot of times it's like I'm taking this trip and I, I have one podcast to record, so I have to bring a whole like laptop setup, And it may be enough to, to, realize, to make me realize like, oh, I don't need to. That one I can do just on my iPad and it'll be fine. That's great. Talking about iPads, uh, the iPad 10.5 inch Pro thing. <laughs> Need a good name for that. Haven't got it yet in my head. Uh, the reviews are out, and uh, I want to point everyone to Mac Stories. Federico had a review unit, a review unit of the new iPad Pro, and he wrote a lovely little review about it, so you should yeah. go and check it out. And uh, I expect that before next week's episode, we'll both own new iPad Pros, so we'll be able to talk about them next week. They come out, I think, tomorrow? Yeah, I think that's right. I, and uh, yes, I anticipate that we'll have new iPad Pros to talk about next week. I, I liked Federico's review and how he, because he, he, like me, is a 12.9 inch uh, iPad Pro user. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's funny because on Twitter yesterday, Harry McCracken was there and he, he his primary computer is also a 12.9 inch iPad Pro. He, he's like Federico. He's, it's, it's, he uses it more than he uses a computer, a re, you know, a, a, a PC. Mm -hmm. It's it's iPad all the way. And I like how Federico, because I was curious, was like, it's pretty good, but the screen, you know, it's not, the screen's not as good as the 12.9 because it's smaller and everything's a little bit smaller. And I like how he was really generous about how impressive a product it is while also kind of giving you the sense that if you're a, if you're a fan of the 12.9, he's, he, he seems to not be convinced that people who like the 12.9 that this extra space on the 10.5 is going to really be enough to make you 
go down from a 12.9 yeah. to a 10.5. And I think the fact that the 12.9 still exists suggests that they had that conversation at Apple and it was very clear that the answer was no, there's still a place for the bigger iPad. Yeah, all that, that math that we spoke about that Dan Provost did, it didn't. Yeah, they didn't, didn't do it. True. Yeah. No, it's a it's a uh, it's same same uh, resolution in terms of uh, pixels per inch as the old nine point seven. It's just got more screen space, so it's it's a new resolution in terms of pixel dimensions. So it's a little bit bigger, but still, if you run uh, uh, two apps side by side on a ten point five iPad Pro, they're both using basically the phone layout, not the iPad layout. And side by side on a twelve point nine, you get two basically vertical iPad apps, traditional iPad layout size side by side. And so that's that that changes the equation. It it has positives in that uh if it was an iPad mini resolution, everything would be way smaller on the display and it might make the tar- it would make the touch targets harder. It would be uh, a tricky decision to make for a mainstream iPad to make that resolution that much higher. But this is the trade-off. The trade-off is it, it it's still not you know, it's still a little cramped. It's not as cramped as the 9.7, but it's still cramped. So more next week, I think, on that. Yes. More next week. Much, there's so much to talk much about, more about these devices that we really need to play with them more ourselves first, I think. Also, I'm planning on putting 11 on mine um, and just going well, that's the there. A lot of the reviews that's unsaid, like I, I've spent um, about half an hour using one of these 10.5 review units uh, in uh, demo area at WWDC, but they were running 11, and and that says it all, right? That Apple would rather you see these things with a developer beta <laughs> than the shipping OS because this is the fully realized version of this. And so, quite rightly, a lot of the reviews basically say, well, this is good, but what really is going to make it great is, I mean, a lot of the reviews are debates about can it replace your laptop, and and some say yes and some say no, um, which I I think is silly because I think yes is the answer there, but you know reasonable people disagree. It's fine, but a lot of them say well maybe, but when iOS 11 comes out, yes. So that's the that's part of the trick of writing a review of something like this. And Federico definitely had to deal with it, which is you want to talk about iOS 11, but it's not out yet. And your review unit didn't come with it. And so, like, your perception of it is, like, what's here now? And then what, what's the coupon in the box for the promise of huh. the, the real features in the fall? So it's a weird situation. But um, as we were last week, my, my enthusiasm, and I think this is true of you, too, my enthusiasm about the future of the iPad and how awesome it's going to be to use iOS 11 with these new iPads. My enthusiasm has not dimmed even a little bit. I am very excited about right, yep. where this is going in terms of being a pro- productivity person on uh, on an iPad. All right. Today's show is brought to you in part by Blue Apron. Not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients do make a real difference with your food. So it's important to know where those ingredients come from. Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the U.S. They set the highest quality standards for their community of over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the United States. For less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes with fresh, high-quality ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals in 40 minutes or less. Each comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients. So... By shipping the exact amount of each ingredient required for a recipe, Blue Apron is reducing food waste 
as well. The freshness guarantee promises that every ingredient in your delivery arrives ready to cook or they'll make it right. You can choose from a variety of new recipes every week or let Blue Apron's culinary team surprise you. Upcoming recipes include spiced zucchini enchiladas with creamy lime and tomato rice, peached honey glazed chicken with mashed sweet potatoes, collard greens and Thai basil. What about warm smoked trout and asparagus salad with fingling potatoes? and garlic croutons. Blue Apron's mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. They deliver to 99% of the continental US, and there's no weekly commitment, so you get those deliveries when you want them. Check out this week's menu and get three meals for free with your first purchase, with free shipping, by going to blueapron.com upgrade. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. Go to blueapron.com upgrade. We thank Blue Apron for their support. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. So, being at WWDC, we mentioned this on the show, I mentioned it a bunch, being at WWDC, recording as quickly as we do, by the way, three and a half hours from keynote end to upgrade being published, I think that was pretty impressive. Yeah. Felt real good. <laughs> Felt real good. That's what we were going for, is to get it out there as quick as we could. First and never worst. That is the uh, the, the mantra of the keynote upgrade. Um, we okay. really It is a thing that we mean you like to do. We like to, to have the show out as soon as we can. Um, I we're a Monday people... podcast. We're a Monday podcast exactly. and the keynotes on a Monday. Mm-hmm. We're going to do that. Like, how could we not do that? Exactly. And we and we want to get it out quickly because there are a lot of people that immediately want to hear it, right? And so we we can provide that. It's very important to us. But it does mean that there's a bunch of stuff that we missed. So our friends over at Mac Stories rounded up a bunch of little things, just kind of the little details that maybe didn't get any uh, coverage from Apple on stage. And I wanted to run through a few of them, Jason, in case uh, our yeah. listeners don't know as well. So. I think I think we need to do it. Yeah, we didn't get we didn't get the breakdown to to we didn't get the chance to break down things because we were in the bubble, right? Exactly that, that post keynote bubble. So one of them is that something I guess something me and you have been talking about for a long time, but now it's here. I wonder what we think of it, which is that WatchOS four and WatchOS four, the beta of the next version of uh, the operating system for the watch. The home screen can be replaced by an alphabetical list of apps instead of the honeycomb. I, I'm looking forward to trying it. I'm not going to install watchOS 4 beta for a while because I use my Apple Watch. <laughs> yeah. But but I am intrigued by this. I hope that it's good. I, I think, yes, that list is potentially long. You should probably... Everybody should probably better curate what apps actually are on their watch. But I like the idea of just scrolling through with the crown and finding an app alphabetically instead of having to go th- like pick through that weird thing. It doesn't work for me. I, I, I don't love going to the honeycomb. So I'm, I'm hoping this will be a better experience. Here's my thinking on this. I don't like the idea of a, a scrolling list of stuff, right? Because it's kind of slow and inelegant. But with my Apple Watch, I can never remember where the apps are on my home sc- on my home screen because I very rarely go there. At least of an alphabetical list, I will know where to go to find the one I'm looking for. So whilst exactly. whilst it's kind of like a band aid over a gunshot wound as a situation as like a solution to a problem, I think it works because it's not elegant. It's going to take longer than you'd want but at least you'll know where to go. Yeah, I think that's about it. Is I mean, you can use Siri to launch apps on the Apple Watch. There's lots mm. of different ways to do it. Complications are a really good way to do it. So 
but I think I think it's good to offer this option. But in practice, that's the question: is like, is it really going to be better to scroll through a list alphabetically than to kind of poke around and slide around and try to find that icon? It's like, which one is the timer and which one is the alarm clock? Right? It may be better just to have that list, but we'll see. And people get yeah. the choice, right? It doesn't if you if you don't like one, the other is still there. I think the dock solved the problem for me, honestly. Um, but just for that, every now and then. Yeah. I think that this is a good idea. Docking complications really made that thing so unimportant. It's rare that I go there. And mostly when I do go there, it's sort of like, oh, yeah, I need to set an alarm, at which point I should probably just use Siri mm-hmm. because it does that just fine. And sometimes I forget and then I'm in the uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm in the, the, the honeycomb. And no, no, I didn't want to do that. So, yeah, we'll see. But it's good that that option exists. There is a new accessibility option called Typed Siri which gives you a text box at the bottom of the screen when you invoke Siri. Um, I've also seen that uh, regular Siri questions have an edit button on them. So without, even without enabling the option, you, you're able to correct what Siri heard you say. So you can fix it, and then it will re-answer the question. So yeah. I think that this is, uh, I think this is good. This is good to have. I think the ability to now, in some cases or all cases, type to Siri instead of talking to Siri. And yeah, uh, as an aside, good. the new Siri voice is unbelievable. New Siri voice is very good. Very, very good. good. I'll, I'll miss the old lady, but the new lady is uh, doing a great job. You could fool me with that, I think. Mm. It's very, impre- very impressive. Um, Jason, I'm sure you're very happy about the fact that you can now share iCloud storage with family sharing. Yeah, this is something that has been a long time coming, but... Um, I was telling my daughter about this that she'll actually be able to like back up her photos and her phone um, because we've got they they increased the terabyte option to two terabytes and we're on the terabyte option because I have more than two hundred gigabytes of photos and that's that's it you either pay for two hundred gigabytes or you pay for two terabytes there's nothing in between so uh, yeah my now my uh, family will be able to have access to that two terabyte portion which means they'll all back up. They'll all be able to have their photos stored. We didn't get any announcements about sharing uh, photos in the photo library, but at least the storage pool can be shared, which means that like, I won't have to have my wife paying for her amount and then my daughter just having the five gigabyte amount and all that. It'll all just be, we'll pay one bill for the two terabytes I'm already paying for and everybody will back, back up freely into it with all their iOS devices. It'll be a much better situation. And two terabytes for the price of one terabyte is good, like right, like two That's terabytes good, yeah. is more than enough for a family, I think. Yeah, I think that this is a sign that Apple is like the prices are more competitive, and now their their storage is getting even even more competitive. I, you know, I hesitate to say it because everybody's got a everybody's got a reflexive horror story about it, but I think Apple is making some serious strides with their cloud stuff these days like the iCloud photo syncing works um i i i'm hoping that high sierra hi sierra be high uh, b- b- potentially feels uh like handles the iCloud uh, drive stuff syncing better that that settled down a little bit but with this two terabytes i started to think you know maybe i should start using iCloud drive because dropbox has still not brought dropbox infinite to regular users where you get to say like um, 
store this store this on the server. I want to be able to see it on my computer, but I don't want the file to actually reside on my computer until I click on it. That's a feature that they now offer. So you can use that terabyte of data within Dropbox, but it's only for business customers. So I can't use it. And I, with this two terabytes in iCloud, I started to think, you know, maybe I should actually try to store stuff in iCloud because it will be able to dynamically like remove it if it needs the storing storage space. So I could store two terabytes worth, even though I've got a 500 gigabyte SSD on my iMac, I could store, you know, a couple of terabytes of data and it wouldn't be a problem because it would all be dynamic. And that's, I don't think the way Apple approaches it really works for me, but I'm starting to think about it just because this is Apple keeps iterating with its cloud stuff and making it more reliable and making it more competitive. And, you know, I don't I think it's I think it's uh, to be taken seriously. I'm not saying they've leaped ahead of everybody, but I am saying that I feel like Apple um, has been doing the right thing with their cloud stuff for a little while now. And it's it's really showing. There is native screen recording coming to iOS 11 with a new control center action. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, you can add a little record button. Talk about an esoteric feature that nobody would expect. I mean, I think the original um, iPhone OS, you couldn't even take screenshots, right? Because mm-hmm. who would want that except for journalists? And it turns out everybody who writes a uh, who can't fit a tweet and writes it in notes and takes a screenshot of it and then tweets the screenshot, it's actually this big thing. And there's a screenshot interface now where you can immediately tap on after you take a screenshot and crop it and share it like right there. So a- Apple is embracing the fact that people want to do screen captures of maybe of games they're playing or who knows what else and they want to take screenshots and and uh it's cool yeah it'll do it it'll do it and record audio and i actually started to wonder if and i haven't tried this because it's a beta and nothing works right yet but i wonder somebody asked me and i had already thought of it could you do a screen recording of a skype call and then take the recording and export the audio and have local audio of your uh of your podcast I don't know. I'm Maybe you could. Oh, I don't know. I'm not sure if it captures the audio from applications. I think, it, well, no, but it, I think it might re- capture your microphone audio. Hmm. I'm not sure. Or maybe it's just the system audio. Anyway, it's it's these are features that I don't think I would ever have predicted. I would never have predicted that Apple would build a screen recording system into iOS. That just seems so outlandish. And there it is. Just pop it on the control center. You get a little record button and you're good to go. It's just like uh, like doing a, a movie capture inside QuickTime on the Mac. You get a little, you know, little red recording icon and it happens. There is also now a limited edition rainbow pride band for the Apple Watch. One of the nylon bands. This is a six color band. It's exactly what you wanted. Yeah, and it's now available for uh for people and it's directly from Apple. It's um in stores as well as online. Mm-hmm. You can get it. And uh I already ordered mine. Cool. I'm going to hopefully pick mine up tomorrow when I go and stalk, like stake out my Apple store for iPads. Yeah, I'm going to pick Good one job. up. Good job. Cuz I think it looks real great. Yeah. It's I've saw, I saw a couple of people wearing it the end of last week. Mhm. It's a great, great, great watch band. I think it looks a lot of fun and it's awesome. And it's, you know, yeah, I really like it a lot. Yeah. And it is the classic six colored mm-hmm. Apple rainbow, which is beautiful. Uh, with iOS 11, AirPods gain the ability to skip tracks. So 
Not only can you do forward and back track skipping on the AirPods, you can now set each left and right AirPod to have a different function. Yeah. So you that's can tap, right. For example, you could tap left for Siri, tap right for pause, or you could maybe have tap right for pause, tap left for skip. I think you can only do one function for each ear, but there are more options that you can choose from as well. That's right. And once you, this is the crazy thing, once you make a change with an iOS 11, this functionality stays set even when it's connected to an iOS 10 device. Right, because what it's really doing is it's programming the AirPods to have what Bluetooth command they're sending, yep. which they can do from anywhere. Because it's whatever the AirPod OS would be, that's what it's updating like on the device, as you say, rather than <sighs> what the iPhone's connected to. So I, I'm really excited about pause and skip. That's, that's what I'm pleased about that they're doing that's how i'm going to set them up uh although i maintain that i still really hate the feeling of tapping the earpods in my ears i don't i don't like it um, i've gotten yeah. i've gotten used to it i avoid it whenever possible yeah. um my my favorite ways to control the airpods are to take one out of my ear uh-huh. or to use my apple watch i use my <laughs> apple watch that's how i do it but but i do um sometimes do the double tap thing um, and and I'm actually very excited about this because this is this is what I asked for, um, and it, it seemed like an obvious way that if it was capable of doing it, that they that they could do it with the AirPods to have different gestures with left and right, and uh, and having the the skipping be programmable too. That's pretty awesome. So that's that's kind of it. I I think I think they're reluctant to do like triple tap for this and quadruple tap for that. They yes. don't want to do that, but th- that's fine and I I I I'm okay mm-hmm. with that. I think just letting you program left and right for the for that double tap to be what you want it to be. Great news. And you went ears on with the HomePod. I did. I listened to a HomePod. You listened to a HomePod. So you were given the ability somewhere in WWDC to listen to a HomePod compared to an Echo and a Sonos Play 3, right? Yep, that's exactly it. So I got to, I, I yes, I was wandering lonely as a cloud <laughs> when I happened Stumbled upon a, a, a Sylvan Glade. There were unicorns mm-hmm. and rainbows and also a HomePod. I want to know how, in your opinion, the HomePod stacked up against these other devices. Did you have any chance to experience the room-filling sound that Apple was talking about? I did. I experienced room-filling sound. So, yeah, it's a... um, Look, it's unfair... I guess, you know, people don't know, but it's a, it's totally unfair to put this thing next to an Amazon Echo because the Amazon Echo doesn't sound very good. And it was never built for music, really. I mean, it plays music, but it's not built for that. It plays music fine, and my family uses it to play music all the time because it's so easy to just call up a song and have it play it that they use it all the time. And I, I, we have so many better speakers in the house, but they use the Echo. The Echo is also uh, a lot cheaper than the HomePod. But uh, the Sonos Play 3 is a good example. That is a product that is about the cost of a HomePod. And uh, 
generally does not sound as good as the HomePod, I would say, having having heard them both in the same space. Although, again, the Sonos Play 3, I don't know whether it was tuned properly or anything like that. I, I'm pretty sure the HomePod doesn't sound as good as the Sonos Play 5, but the Play 5 is way more expensive than the HomePod, I believe. Right. So... Um, and, and the other thing I noticed about the Play 3 is that the Play 3 is a, you know, it's, it's a speaker box, right? So even though it's stereo um, and the, the HomePod is not, technically, it's, a, it's got lots of speakers, but it's really just doing a sort of single sound field. It's, it's doing its own processing to shoot different parts to different directions. But uh, the, the Sonos Play 3, my point is, when you're sitting in front of it, it sounds really great. And then you walk to the side of it, and it sounds like the noise is being pointed somewhere else, because mm-hmm. it is. It's being pointed right in front of it. And the HomePod doesn't sound like that. The HomePod is engineered to fill the room in the sense that it doesn't feel like you're out of the sweet spot. It's trying to make the entire room the sweet spot. And it sounds pretty good. The bass is good. Um, the, the treble separation is good. They're doing a lot of processing, like I said. They are trying to fire different parts of the music off in different speakers in order to give you this distinct sound and room filling sound and and i think my question on the music side is what's apple doing to process this stuff and how's it going to sound in its final iteration will there be settings will it intelligently detect what kind of music it is and alter how it does it Um, can you turn that sort of processing off because i know that there are going to be some music lovers who will most people won't care but there'll be some music lovers who will be freaked out by what it does to the music in terms of basically you know remixing it on the fly <laughs> in order to get what what apple's setting says is the best sound um i do think it would be great if it was really intelligent and we don't have any details of this now and said oh this is classical i'm going to do something different and this is pop i'm going to do something different right but um we don't know whether it's got presets or something that's dynamic that's just like so much of the home pod it's kind of a mystery all of it sounded pretty good except um the one example i keep giving that i thought was an interesting example of how the home pod is is manipulating the sound is Stevie Wonder's Superstition, which when I was standing right in front of the Sonos Play 3 and standing in front of the HomePod, I felt like the Play 3 actually did a better job of representing it than the HomePod because the HomePod sort of split it out and made it kind of um, more airy almost like it's got different sounds kind of coming from different places because that's what the home pod does and that song it struck me like it didn't sound right that it, the kind of crunchy compressed 70s stevie wonder sounded better crunchy and compressed rather than kind of decompressed and flung out to various portions of the room via the home pod so um but you know they've got six months to work on the software that processes the audio and but you know again apple owns beats beats products tend to skew like beats beats has an opinion about what makes uh music sound good and people who are like real audio aficionados can often hate that because they don't think that it's a true like representative sound. And that's just an argument that's going to happen. So maybe the HomePod will be like that in that they're going to process that sound to something that they think is a crowd pleaser. And fair enough. They they probably should do that if most people will, will enjoy it that way. I think the question is, you know, will it do that? To what degree does it do that? And most of the songs I heard sounded fantastic on the HomePod. It was just the Stevie Wonder song that I thought, although it sounded good, it didn't sound right. And that that was interesting to me to to have that experience. And then they, they, they there was also in the Glade, 
over by one of the the unicorns, there was a second HomePod, and I did get to hear one song in stereo pair mode where you can take two HomePods and have one basically handling left and one handling right, and that does fill the room with even more kind of impressively directional sound where I felt like I was in a in a uh, more like a surround sound space where um, I could I could get a lot of uh, stereo detail, whereas my understanding is that the HomePod doesn't actually. Um, do try to do directional stereo kind of detail when it's just operating by itself. It's basically treating it as a mono signal and then doing its own secret sauce, which seems a little weird to me, but yeah. since they've got seven speakers that they couldn't like process the stereo signal and try to give it a little bit of directionality, but they, uh, it, it seems not to. What did you think of how the uh, HomePod looked? I don't know. I think it looks weird, but that would get used to it. I guess they all kind of look weird, don't they? The Amazon Echo looks weird yeah. too. It's like a what's what's inside that canister that's sitting on your kitchen table? It's this kind of computery pod with the uh, the perforations around it, and this one's got this kind of fabricy looking thing on it. And uh, I don't know. It, it's it's a it is a pod that sits in your home. I mean, it it's not wrong. That's what it is. Uh, and I think. Uh, yeah, I, I think like the name, I think people will get used to it. it. It's a new sort of thing. I think Apple's trying to make it not super obtrusive and, um, yeah, you know, they make sure. claims that that's all sort of sound conducting goodness, 3d fabric, whatever. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I'm intrigued by it, but I, I will also point out that it's, it's priced as a premium speaker. It's 349. So it is not priced as a. Uh, an affordable digital assistant box that will play sound, but not very well. Like Apple seems, at least with this first product, Apple did not choose to compete directly against the Echo. Like they they are they are at creating a Sonos caliber speaker with Siri embedded in it, mm-hmm. and that's a different market than the Google Home and the Amazon Echo. So that's important to keep in mind. Also, we have never heard it respond to a Siri command. That is a, a completely like other than the the slides they put up at the keynote, we have to imagine that right now. And I suspect that's in part because of the marketing push they want to do, which is to make it about music. It's in part because the Siri stuff is still being worked on. <laughs> I mean, there were no Siri demos of the of the HomePod at WWDC that you, you, you couldn't touch it, couldn't speak to it. You could look at it and you could, if you were lucky and you wandered into the, the, the unicorn grove, listen to it, but that's it. Do you know... If there is a touchscreen on the top of the HomePod, it seems like this is something that people are in disagreement over on the internet. So it looked like the demo units that I was seeing it looked like there was some sort of Siri animation thing happening on the top of it. Yeah. Keeping in mind these are canned, like it's not a real product yet, right? So they were playing that. I was told that you can get volume up and down buttons on there, although I didn't see them. So it sounds like there is a display and it does have some touch sensitivity on it. But it's on this, on the top of this device. So to call it a touchscreen in the way that we think of touchscreens, I think is probably inaccurate, it does seem to have some sort of a display with some sort of touch on it, but it's not really meant to be an interface other than for the most basic things like um, like changing the volume or maybe pausing or something like that. But they, I got no details 
about it other than that there would there you know you could you could touch for volume up and down and there would be volume up and down buttons on the top and since there don't yeah. seem to be physical buttons as far as i could tell that suggests that there is touch sensitivity um on some part of the panel it's also possible that there's touch sensitivity on certain parts of the panel and that it's not a touch screen but there's a touch you know there are a couple of touch areas that light up when they're they're activated um and that it's not you know, it depends on the engineering of it. Like, it may not be that you could program any sort of button to be on there. It Maybe there's a certain area where there's a button that can light up that you can touch. Um, I don't know. But there's something going on up there. If I was going to place my bet, it would be that this is not a touch screen. Like, it's not, it's not a screen that's going to have content and information displayed on it. I think that's what people are still kind of hoping that this is what it's going to be. I think it certainly won't because it's not it's not even something that you could literally look at conveniently it's in the wrong because place. it's 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 basically on the top on a flat surface it's on yeah. a on the on a horizontal plane parallel to the 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 table it's sitting on it's not a place to read things so I think it'll be like used for feedback like color maybe like like the ring think of the ring on an Amazon Echo like that ring is animating and showing you color uh, to indicate things. Yeah, that is more easily seen though because it's around the edge and not the top exactly, you know. Yeah, although the way that it's the way that it's structured you can still see that again, if right. all you're looking for is like a little color feedback, it you can see you that. that on the on the HomePod too, but that's okay. about all. Um and then yeah, maybe if you touch it it uh it it presents you with a couple of touch buttons. I I I think it may be a touch surface, maybe not multi-touch, but like a touch surface that will give you kind of basic like tap here to increase the volume when you're when you put your hand on it like it'll let you physically interact a little bit with it but it's not I I, I would not call it a a display it's more like an ambient interface kind of thing okay it's my guess all right Jason do you want to tell us about MailRoute well this episode of Upgrade is brought to you by MailRoute a secure hosted email filtering service that you can have up and running in just minutes I did it. It was easy. You can do it too. MailRoute gets rid of spam and viruses so you don't have to. There's no installation required for hardware or software. They take care of all of that. There are That means there are no costly upgrades or updates that you need to worry about. They handle it all. They have a 24-7 support team in case you do need help, but it's incredibly easy. They've got amazing reporting tools and notifications so you can keep track of everything that's going on with your filtered email. What are the trends in spam this week? It's very entertaining to find out, but you don't need to have the spam on your server. <laughs> this week in spam with Jason Snell. Oh man, it, it is. I read that. I love reading that email uh, from MailRoute saying we filtered all this out because it's just like, oh, this is a new trend in spam. It's it's amazing. There there absolutely are trends in what subjects are being spammed. It's incredible. MailRoute has four data centers. They have three x redundancy to ca- take care of your email. It's not going to go down. There's no single point of failure. They keep their servers running at no more than thirty three percent capacity. So in case there's a spike, they can handle it. They're smart. And they're email experts over there at MailRoute. They are the people you can trust to do mail filtering right. Uh, What is great about them also is if you're running your own server, you may know, you may not know that... um, that spammers are connecting directly to your server. Even the mail that doesn't come through, uh, mail servers will connect and try to send mail to every possible combination of addresses at your mail server. I used to run my own mail server on my home internet account uh, here in my house. And you know what? It killed my internet connection because so much of my internet traffic was spamming email servers connecting to my server and saying, how about 
A at your domain? How about AA? How about Adam? How about like just just every possible email address? So the ones for every spam, I would MailRoute would tell you exactly the number, but I will tell you um, for every spam mail you get, there are hundreds that are tried to be sent to your domain and they fail because your mail server says nope. But that locks up, you know, your server and your server takes the time to respond to that. And it, it's it's slowing down your server and it's slowing down your network. Get that junk off your network. MailRoute will take the hit for you. So your server is never bogged down by bad email. Find out more by going to MailRoute.net slash upgrade. Sign up today and you'll get a 30-day free trial, 10% off the lifetime of your account. So if you're happy with it, you'll be getting that sweet 10% discount forever. And if you are looking at or using a competitor's product and you've got a contract, guess what? MailRoute will price match it. So they will not be beaten and they won't be beaten in terms of the service. I can tell you that too. Thank you to MailRoute for supporting Upgrade. There was a session at the end of WWDC this week about podcasting. Um, There was. was. It full of uh, some expected and unexpected things that have been added to Apple Podcasts. One of them... Um, is I want to say a welcome change, but then it it it, it I think it kind of colors the rest of my discussion in a way that I'm not expecting <laughs> it to sound like. Um, which is RSS enhancements. So this is something yeah. that I have been expecting Apple to do for a while to find ways to enhance the RSS spec for podcasts, which Apple kind of created in its current form hence why there are so many tags that say itunes something yeah and everything else looks for those tags all other podcast apps are built around these tags that apple created for their itunes feeds back it's kind of how all podcast feeds are built using these tags yeah for people who don't know it's rss and and podcasting you know yeah it's a standard but apple has been in it so long and they created a whole bunch of these custom tags that are all preclude pre, or preceded by itunes to enhance the data that itunes displayed on a mac in 2005 basically mm-hmm. and if you're running a, your own podcast app now you would be silly to not take advantage of the that metadata and so everybody reads it and so it's it's not standard standard but it's basically a standard and it means that apple because it's so popular uh, as a podcast platform i think podcast app on ios is the number one by far podcast listening app in existence on any platform It, it is uh it is able to put in new tags for its use that everybody's going to do. And then everybody, every other app can pick those up because it's totally open. It's not like Apple has secret sauce here. And, uh, and so they did, they made a lot of enhancements. Um, some of which they already had in some other form, but I, I think this is a, a, uh, kind of a big batch trying to see what podcasts are doing today and how the current set of uh, tags in a podcast feed aren't good enough. So they added a whole slew of them. So as a, as a owner of a company that creates its own CMS for podcasts, therefore yeah. its own feeds, I would like to extend my thanks to Apple for not changing the names of the tags from iTunes yeah. to Apple. <laughs> because yeah. in theory, they yeah. should, right? Because it's not iTunes anymore. It's Apple Podcasts. Yeah. So I would just like to thank Apple for not doing that, right? So yeah. <laughs> I don't now have to rewrite everything. but Because what, what they've given are additional 
pieces of functionality on top of what right. is existing. And these are really um, all focused around seasons because there have been lots of podcasts, plus are very popular podcasts, um, and the clue is in the name for how some of these tags are written uh, are, that are for seasons. And I think Apple are referring to these as uh, standard and serial. Um, and I don't think it's like just for <laughs> serial, just but that these shows are serialized, hence where the name serial came from in the first place. But it is funny. There was already a sort order tag, which they are replacing basically with this that let you say, because Stephen Wilson from Apple told me about it at one point, mm-hmm. um, and I used it on Total Party Kill and Incomparable Radio Theater. And the idea that some podcasts should be listened to from the start and not from the most recent, like Upgrade, you should listen to the most recent episode because we're very topical. But something like Total Party Kill, which is a Dungeons and Dragons podcast that I do, and it's storytelling, and you start at the start of the story. The latest episode will make no sense. You should start at the beginning. Uh, So now there's a new version of that called the iTunes Type, and that lets you choose episodic or serial. And so, yeah, if you want people to start at the beginning, you say serial. This podcast is, is meant to be serial. And then people will, it'll be sorted properly with the yeah. first episode at the top. I assume there will be user UI that will allow for like collapsing and stuff like that inside of applications. Exactly. So, so the, the, they also didn't break like the standard title of an episode because a lot of times I think Relay does this and Incomparable does this. Um, and a lot of podcasts do. Your episode title would be like the episode number colon the name of the show or maybe season two episode two colon the name of the episode that is that that kind of catch-all title tag is still there but apple has introduced a pure title tag which just is the name of the episode an episode tag which is just the number of the episode and a season tag which is the season number of the that the episode lives inside. Now I have some questions about this in terms of how it's interpreted uh, in the podcast app in iTunes and then how it will be interpreted by other apps that don't follow those things. Because I'm not quite sure if you say that it's season two, episode one, and you're in a regular podcast app, does it display that as just another episode one? And is that weird? I don't, I don't know all of the, all of those details, but um, it's, it's clever and it's one of the things that it will make for a way better interface for podcast listeners because now the apps won't have to do any funny business to try and extrapolate episode numbers from titles or things like that. They'll just have the metadata. They'll have a raw, clear title with no junk in it. They'll have an episode number. They'll have a season number if 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 available and a uh, and a summary field that's a single descriptive sentence in plain text and that's 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 good like that is going to make cleaner interfaces with a lot less junk in them for everybody who listens to podcasts in the long run yeah there are also the ability to add trailers and bonus episodes too as denoted in the feeds this is the one i think of all of them that i could see us using um at relay fm we don't do currently any shows that seasonal in nature i don't right. I, I can think of there might be some shows that might want to take advantage of this i, I don't know but well your uh, uh your inquisitive did a couple of seasons right i that was what i was thinking of yeah and and total party kill and the incomparable radio theater and not playing three shows on the incomparable network all do seasonal stuff and and it would be uh pretty good for that but but you're right um a lot of podcasts do trailers for a few reasons, not only to h- hype up a show, but to get it in iTunes because mm-hmm. you can't publish, right? You can't publish page. a podcast with yeah. nothing in it. So you have to have like a uh, either your first episode, but you kind of want people 
to know that it's coming. So you post like a zero episode that is, this podcast is coming, subscribe now and you'll get it when it starts. And that's a teaser or a trailer. And now there's an episode type called trailer that you can mark that treats it differently. Um, for if it's seasonal, mm-hmm. it'll actually say, here's the trailer for the season. If it's for the whole podcast, it'll say, here's the trailer. It, it, it'll be separate in the interface. And again, any podcast app can read that and, and display it in an appropriate way. And then bonus, like that's a great example of like five by five did after dark, the incomparable did bonus track. We occasionally, Occasionally have these the relay does B sides. We occasionally do this thing where we've got not it's not in the episode, but it's like additional material. And what this would allow you to do if you chose to do it, and and I was thinking to myself, I'm not sure whether I would choose this, but if this was widely implemented, I might. Which is rather than have like a separate feed for your bonus stuff, what this does is let you put it in the in the feed and just say, here's the episode, here's the bonus, mark it as bonus, and then in the podcast app, it looks like it will be like shown that way where you'll, you'll see the episode and then you'll also see, oh, and there's also bonus material you can listen to, which depending on how that's done could actually be really clever and cool. Um, so we'll see, but these are all things that podcasts really do and that the podcast spec didn't really know how to handle and it made it all messy. So I'm very happy that Apple has stepped up here because who, if not them, then who, like, I, I think it had to be Apple to do this. So I'm I'm keen to see how all of this is implemented across the board um, from just technically and from a user interface perspective because there could be some things here that we might want to take advantage of. Maybe, I don't know, there might have been some ideas that we have not pursued because it would have been tricky to do. Um, so right. I'm, I'm keen to see how a lot of this, this stuff shakes out. The other story, which got like just a couple of minutes at the end of this uh, presentation, is that in December, I think they said, towards the end of the year, um, Apple is going to be opening up some new analytics for podcasts. Um, And if Apple is going to do any analytics, this is the right way to do it. So it's all anonymized data and using aggregate listener behavior. And this will be statistics and analytics for what the Apple Podcasts app can work out from you listening in any of their on any of their platforms. So yeah. there are listener numbers. Now obviously these are just listeners that have just listened inside of the Apple Podcast app. And the big thing is that Apple is going to show podcasters how many people are listening in Apple Podcasts, where they start, stop and skip in the episodes. So this is really interesting. So people are going to be able to find out where their listeners are skipping ahead. Yeah, we've talked about this in in the past where um, we don't actually know generally if you play an episode. Mm-hmm. We only really know that you downloaded it. That's it. Like, that's, that's it. Or started streaming it. Yeah, exactly. So to have the actual play number is huge. And then we're going to be able to know how long do people listen and where do they skip and and how many of those things. And that's I think that's really valuable because we're going to um, just being on the positive side here. Like I think I think knowing when uh, people tune out on a long podcast is really useful. Mm-hmm. And if you do ads, knowing that you should probably put your ads when people are listening and not when they've tuned out. Because I've been on long podcasts where the ads are in the first hour, 
And I've been on long podcasts where the ads are spread across two and a half hours. And if I were the advertiser, I'd probably prefer to be in the first hour and not in, you know, at two hours and 10 minutes, right? And so we'll have numbers that'll say, oh, geez, yeah, we should not, (laughs) all the ads should be earlier on. And it does mean that if those advertisers get those numbers, they're going to be able to say, I don't want to be in the last half hour. I want to be in the first hour. Um, and And that's fair. It also lets us as podcasters know, oh, you know what? Doing those two hour shows, nobody likes it. They never get to the end. They, they run out of their, their patience ends after an hour and 15 minutes. Maybe we should shoot for that. And I think that's really valuable too. And we don't, we don't know that. And then, yeah, we're going to find out what percentage of people skip um, podcast ads. And you could argue that that will be uh, bad because the advertisers will get mad because they'll know that. But I don't know. In most, there's a lot of complexity here, right, Mike? Because like, for, if you're a brand advertiser uh, who's like Coke, it's great. Ford, you should buy a Ford truck. It's different than if you're a direct response advertiser who's um, who's paying for people to put in a, a code or something or visit a URL where they know it came from a particular podcast. It's a different kind of business, and I'm not sure one of those is as is as affected by it as the other is. My take on this is that the reason that this is happening is because the New York-based media uh, of the world want to get companies like Coke to advertise on their shows, but can't because Coke want to know exactly how many people are listening to their ad, which is something we can't provide. Exactly. So so these companies have been asking Apple to do this for a while, and I'm happy that what it seems that Apple is doing, or at least beginning with, is basic and it's anonymized because the whole the thing that we were talking about before is how it could get really bad. So I'm pleased that they're going down this route. At least this, if this is just the beginning, they're at least showing good intentions with how they want to track it all. So the thing is, how it's going to affect the medium as a whole is unknown, but if I was going to put money on it, I don't think it's going to have a big effect. I think a lot of people are thinking now, ah, well, this means there's going to be no more advertising because no one (laughs) listens to the ads. Well, I can tell you that people do because in case you hadn't noticed, basically all of our advertisement ends in one of two things. Go to this URL, use this code. And it is the redemption of visits of these two things combined with whatever the advertiser wants to track plus any other measurements that they have for their own analytics and their own performance, right? So, like, all they'll see is visits or redemptions. Now, they have their own internal metrics as to whether that's good for them or not, right? They'll know what they're trying to meet target-wise. The fact that these are still happening and those advertisers keep coming back shows you that this is working. Now, I will tell you, Squarespace, they're still tracking all of this stuff, right? right. Now, they are an advertiser that you might think by this point has maybe got enough, but I can tell you that they still track it. They track those redemptions, like every other advertiser that I know that uses this stuff. And we have some advertisers that all they're doing is just trying to get their name out to the world. And they may right. be the ones that become the most interested in how many people are actually listening. 
that's what I was going to say is I actually think this is going to be really great for brand advertising. And Squarespace, I think, is an interesting example where because of the nature of the medium, Squarespace has been doing direct response in their advertising and measuring it. Because how else do you measure podcast advertising effectiveness? It's either that or how many jokes are made about Squarespace because everybody hears their ads on podcasts. But like, how do you do it? Direct response is the only way, which is funny because what I would argue Squarespace has been doing all along is running a branding campaign. Ultimately, what they want is not... Not, they don't expect you're necessarily going to start a website now, but they are expecting that when you think of starting a website, you'll think, oh, I could do that on Squarespace and then sign up, maybe with a code or maybe just on your own. But mm-hmm. if you're Coke, if you're Ford, if you're somebody like that, that's a pure brand advertiser, like they can't, they could say visit Ford.com slash podcast one, two, three, right? Yep, but they, they don't, don't want to do that. that. So for them, they're going to be able to go to a, and it's not going to be us, right? It's going to be a giant ad sales uh, network like Midroll maybe and say, we want to buy these podcasts and get feedback back wow. of like how many listens we got. And maybe they will be able to do that. What I expect what will happen is they will go, It'll be, it'll be basically be the way that um, newspaper advertising and TV advertising and billboards work. Where what will most likely happen is they will go to an ad buying agency, either someone like a mid-roll or someone like a uh, just a traditional media buyer, right? Like like a CBS or someone like that, right? Who who put things into billboards and stuff like that. And they will say, "We want to reach ten million podcast listeners." Right, and these are the thing. These are the types of shows we want, and these are the types of shows we don't want. Like we want comedy, we don't want technology. And then a company like the Midroll will go, okay, we will get you those listens, and then they yep. will just spread it all out, right? And I think that some of the direct response stuff, I believe, is actually done this way. So some of the companies that are doing this, this the current advertising that you're hearing, they go to an agency and say, we want this on these types of shows. And then those agencies will pitch to them. These are the shows that we think will fit for you. So there's a, for sure. there's a bit of that done right now. That that's what happens with the ads on the incomparable. Those are all part okay. of bulk buys that midroll sells. Yeah. So for me, I'm not worried about this more than I am any other change. And honestly, I'm worried about this less, just because over the time that that we've been running this company, lots of things have changed, and there have been lots of things I've been worried about. But nothing has affected it in the grand scheme of st- things. So, really, I'm assuming there is a percentage of our audience that are skipping, but it's still fine, right? Like, the, the advertising that, that we're doing, which I am managing still, and have been mostly since the beginning of the company, I know the relationships are good, I know that the redemptions are good, so I'm comfortable with it. I don't think it's going to change. Maybe... People will want numbers differently and there will be some stuff that we'll be able to give people and some stuff that we won't. And that could change some prices. But honestly, I don't think it's going to be a lot, if anything. But what it might do is open us up to some companies that wouldn't have taken us before. So I think that could be really interesting. We could get companies like Ford. It has been been a long-term dream of mine to get a car company. I don't know why. It's just something I thought would be kind of funny ever since I've watched like Mad Men. Because for advertising agencies, they all want a car. So I'm like, well, why can't a car advertise? You know, So that, that could happen now because it's a different type of reporting that we're able to give. Where we can right. give more numbers than the company themselves can work out, right? Because there's no code redemptions and stuff. 
But the the problem that that we're going to have is that Apple podcasts are in the inverse, percentage-wise, I believe, to most of the shows that you may know of in the bigger space. So, like, I, I will say, like, for this show, I expect that Apple podcasts app is less than 30% of our downloads because it's difficult to tell because currently anything listened to on any Apple platform is reported as one thing which which is like this core media thing that Apple have so like it could be people listening in Safari it could be people listening in iTunes like whatever but it's probably around a third now that means that our numbers will be very different to some other companies so we will have to extrapolate and also they may not be proportional to our entire audience, either negatively or positively. So unless other applications start doing this, which some may, some may not, I know lots of people that make them and I haven't asked anyone, honestly. I've not spoken to anyone about this. I haven't spoken to Russell about this. I haven't spoken to the Castro team about this. I haven't spoken to Marco about this. Like I know these people and I'm not talking to them about it yet because whatever, maybe we will at some point. But I, I am... I think that everyone will be waiting to see how this goes with Apple before considering to do it themselves. Uh, this is something that any yeah. podcast app can do, by the way. So I don't. My gut feeling is that nobody else is going to feel the need to do it because, or, or really any, any reason to do it for for the reason that you just described, which is I think Apple's, although for certain markets like ours, Apple's stats may not be a great proxy because it may be that. That if it's only 30% of Relay listeners, I just looked, it only seems to be about 25% of incomparable listeners. I would say that that Relay, I meant upgrade, by the way. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's different across the entire network. It's different on every show, right? Yeah. But but for these tech-skewed ones, like half of the incomparable's listeners are on Overcast, right? I mean... That's not normal in the industry. It's but it, it's sort of fitting for where we are. The so the argument would be well, the people who tend to listen in Overcast are a different kind of person with different behavior than the person who lives listens in the Apple Podcast app, and therefore the Apple stats are not uh, applicable necessarily as applicable as to the you know something like Serial where it's probably a much larger percentage. But I think the argument would be that. Th- the Apple stuff is going to be the best proxy for the market as a whole, for the larger market, and that the smaller markets aren't going to be worth the podcast ad, podcast advertisers or I mean podcast app developers um, adding in stats because they're going to be such small numbers that they're not going to really be particularly applicable either. And one of the ways you differentiate yourself from Apple is by saying we don't track you, which is probably what Overcast will do. Is my guess? It's just like that's great. We don't. We won't track you. So if you don't like Apple tracking every pause and play and ad skip in your podcast app, because that's going to happen now, then use a third party instead. They are doing that, right? Like I say, it's anonymized, but it's they are anonymizing the data that they're providing to people. They are tracking in some way. Yeah, just like many apps do. But yeah, what they're probably doing here is I say when any I say any app can do this. What they're probably doing is just tracking the play pause for their syncing between devices, which any app can do. But they are choosing to actually take that data and do something with it, as opposed to it just being a syncing system. That's what I assume is going on, right? But they're taking that information and making that data available. 
even though it's anonymized. So there is an element of them keeping data about you, right? Which I, I don't believe any other application is doing past the point where it would just override it for wherever you are in that show, right? If I'm, I'm making sense here, like I, my assumption would be that for other applications, they're just like, wherever you are in that current episode, that's kind of the information that's being synced to the cloud. But Apple yeah. is now storing that information because yeah. they are like, you skip to here. Okay, we'll store that, store that. Like they're storing each of these data points that they're keeping, which I don't believe other applications are doing, right? They, they would just probably just override the information for their syncing system. I wouldn't surprise, I mean, like, I, I my guess is that all of the, um, the company-owned uh, apps are tracking like stitcher i would imagine stitcher is mid since midroll bot stitcher i'd imagine stitcher is tracking everything and midroll is probably using that as a proxy to make get some ideas about user behavior maybe and that this will be a much better this will be a much better proxy because it's a, a huge sample size although something else we should talk about how apple's going to make this available it sounds like it's going to be available to the owner of the podcast in itunes yeah and podcast connect yeah, so the logistics issue is going to be like you have to if you're if you're the owner you have to get it out of there. If you're somebody who has a, an ad network you're working with, you're going to have to like export the data and provide it to them. There's going to be some challenges with how that is structured that'll have to come up. I realize this is inside baseball, but it's like, you know, it, it this is the start of a process that may lead to way better data and may change the way that this all works, but it is just a step along the way and there's way more that has to happen and it won't be a catch all but i do think that in the end for most people this will be a proxy for all podcast behavior because yeah. it, it because apple owns so much of this market i'm interested to see how it will affect shows like ours um i expect honestly not massively because the companies that we're working with we've been working with already so they know how it works and how it doesn't and we may provide this information um we may not. I mean, I haven't decided how we're going to work with this yet, honestly. Like, we're going to have this information. We don't have to give anybody anything. Like, I'll tell you now, like, I don't even... I, I give total download numbers to sponsors when they ask it, but I give no proof of it other than what I'm telling them, right? They don't get screenshots from me or anything like that. I, I give the information, and there is an expectation that the honesty is maintained, right? And it is, right? Like I give people the numbers that they need, but that's all anybody gets right now. There's no other information provided. So I'm interested to see how that goes as well, right? Like, will we just provide this information? Will people want proof of this information? I don't know. So that's why I don't know how we will deal with it yet. Because as well, I don't even know if I'm ever going to be asked for it. Because if yep. we continue working with companies in the same way that we have now, then it doesn't make a difference. And I do believe, honestly, that... If the industry, our science of the industry remains as it is right now, companies getting their own data is way better than the data that I give them. Like a company knowing how many code redemptions they've had is better. And honestly, as well, ads with discount codes work better than ads without because people are getting something. Yeah. So I, I'm keen to see how it all unfolds. And I guess there's going to be a lot more as the year goes on and then more to say once it actually happens. But I will tell you honestly, I am not worried about this at all. You know, uncertainty yeah, is concerning, I but I don't I honestly don't believe there's going to be any major changes because I also don't think it's a large percentage of our audience that do skip. I don't, because otherwise my business would have failed before now. <laughs> right? If there yeah. were not enough people to justify the ad spend buying the products, our business would have folded a long time ago. 
And I don't think that this is the case, right? I I just don't. I, I, I think that we're fine. I think that the average, well, I know the advertisers are happy. So any extra data will be nice, but I don't see it making massive changes to our business. So that is your inside baseball for this week's episode. Yeah, I think we will learn more about podcast behavior and that will be interesting. There could be some some stuff that we will want to change. I mean, I'll tell you right now, I'm not going to pay episode to episode focus on this, right? Like, oh no, people didn't like that 10 minutes in that last episode. We can never talk about that again. Because I don't think that's healthy and I don't think that it will I don't think it will be completely accurate, so I don't want to be a slave to those numbers. But if I can look at a specific show and be like, every single episode, nobody listens to specific 15 minutes, then maybe we'll want to change it. But honestly, I feel like that's the sort of information, if it was like widespread, that we would have heard by now. Right? Yeah. That people would have told us, oh, I hate Ask Upgrade. Don't ever do that again. I think we would have, and no one's ever said that. So Right, but I, I, I still feel like if you're doing a podcast that's regularly two hours long and you get feedback that the last half hour you have like 15% of the people listening. Maybe your podcast mm-hmm. is too long. That's what I mean. That's what I'm saying. Like, for if, if, if there is data that is clear for every single episode, then maybe we'd want to change something. But what I'm saying is that I don't want to check every episode and like look specifically when did people right. tune out. Oh God, so, what did we say? Oh, exactly. they hated when we talked about, you know. Yeah. I don't think it's healthy yeah, because you don't get no. any context around it, right? And there could be that, some yeah. just wide scale thing that happened, which meant nobody listened, right? But it doesn't, yeah, so I I just think that I personally find it unhealthy for to track statistics that closely, and so I won't be. But I will use it the way that I use any numbers, in that I will look at them every now and then, and then maybe make some changes. So, yeah, yeah, that's I I think we talked about this when we talked about ads the last time that that I I never um, I try very hard not to look at web stats, and it's for the same reason is that it gets in your head, and you start to chase the statistics, and the statistics are not what that chasing statistics does not make for good material that's you can't have that be the thing that's in your head so for that yeah i don't want to i'm not gonna i'm not gonna care but a very broad aggregate that could be really useful and and let's what we're talking about here in the end is that the thing we do for a living has provided almost no information about how people actually use it so we all just have to extrapolate and this is going to give us some idea and we'll learn some things from it and that's great in general and i would i'm open to learning from the the broad swath of data right i think that'll be really interesting and could be good and could help us make podcasts that are that that make the audience happier and that's great because we don't have any statistics on whether you tuned out or not because it's coming later, uh, let us know if you're interested in hearing us talk about stuff like this again in the future. I know that people did last time, which was why we did. But if this is something that now is too far in the weeds, fine. If it's not, then maybe we can have some guests on again to talk about this at some point yeah. in the future. Maybe so. All right, it's time for some Ask Upgrade. Today's Ask Upgrade, hashtag Ask Upgrade, is brought to you by our friends at Encapsula, the multifunction content delivery network that boosts the performance of your website, protects it from denial of service attacks, and secures it from bad guys, whilst ensuring high availability. Over 100,000 organizations trust Encapsula every day, from tiny companies to huge Fortune 500 organizations. It doesn't matter who you are, Encapsula is there to protect you. They have all the resources you're ever going to need to help your website load quickly, even if something bad is going on. 
And with their 24-7 operations team, you have that additional help there if you need it. You get personal account management and the best service level agreement in the business. You don't have to worry. Encapsula have got you covered. You're going to be well protected and your site will be lightning fast at all times. As a listener of this show, you can get one whole month of service for free. All you need to do is go to encapsula.com slash upgrade. That's I-N-C-A-P-S-U-L-A.com slash upgrade. This is where you can find out more and claim your free month. Thank you so much to Encapsula for their support of this show and Relay FM. Ask upgrade time. Today's first question comes from Robin. What is your take on using the iOS public beta on a secondary device with primary accounts like iCloud? Is it too risky? So, at the stage that we're at right now, I recommend that people only use secondary devices with the iOS public beta. Jason, would you like to tell people what happened to you a couple of days ago? (laughs) I installed the developer beta on a 9.7-inch iPad Pro, which is a test system that I have. It's not the system that I use. I use a 12.9, but I do have a 9.7. I use it to review accessories and, and all that. Not anymore, right? Now it's it's a it's a goner, but uh, I installed it on there as a as an iOS 11 test. It was great, and then I tried to set a desktop wallpaper, and it died, and wouldn't reboot, and I had to reset it, uh, put it into reset mode, and attach it to a Mac running iTunes and reset it to get it to work again, and that was in the first like hour that I used it. So what I'm saying is. Uh, definitely don't install this on anything but a secondary device, not a device you care about. And in terms of uh, iCloud stuff, I've never had a problem with that. I, I've never had an experience where yeah. I, I think I think iOS knows what to keep separate in terms of uh, of devices, and I don't think it's risky. I've never seen an issue with it. There was one release. Um, I think it was iOS seven. It was either iOS seven or iOS eight, where if you signed in to iCloud, it would destroy your iCloud, like some functions of iCloud syncing across all of your devices, right? They, there was, they were upgrading something or changing something. And if you did it, it was like, well, now uh, iCloud app syncing, or whatever it's called, won't work on any device, right? Like it just hosed it. They did say that that was going to happen, though, in the release notes. So I think by now it's known. What I will say makes a big difference now is that there is a public beta. Apple would not do that with a public beta. Right, the, the your iCloud is not going to be intended to be reset or killed if you're using the iOS public beta. So right. I would say use the public beta if you want to put it on any device that's important to you, but still with caution because, for example, your battery life may become atrocious. Right, like these are some of the things that you have to accept. Um, but I recommend that you put it on a secondary device. And I will say I use my own iCloud information. I don't have a test yep. iCloud account. But it Me has too. happened in the past. So just pay attention to the release notes and the known issues before installing. Tim asked, is it worth buying the 13-inch MacBook Pro with Touch Bar for the better processor if I don't care about the Touch Bar? Um, I will say... Uh, Unless you intend to use the Touch Bar, I wouldn't get this machine. I used the Touch Bar MacBook Pro for editing Connected last week, and I hated it. I found it really distracting that the screen kept changing. And in its current form, 
which is that maybe a lot of apps like there's still not still doesn't tend to be like a lot of really amazing functions for it. I don't know if I would enjoy using it on a daily basis. Like the fact that every time I switched app, the screen changed, my peripheral vision was triggered, and I would look down. Now, I don't know if this if people that use this every day, all day still suffer with this issue. But I think for me personally, it's not great. Also, uh, I would put my hands down on the keyboard and I would accidentally trigger expose and stuff like that. I found it I found it frustrating. If it was me, I would go for the, the non-touch bar MacBook Pro right now. You've had if you've had more time with a MacBook Pro. Does the does the distraction stop? I I I couldn't say. I have I wouldn't say that I've spent enough time deep down on a touch bar MacBook Pro to, to make a decision about that did you find it distracting like i did though i didn't find it distracting no okay so maybe this is just a personal preference thing so try and use it in a store maybe first no i i think if you don't well because the premise of this question is the processor even if you don't care about the touch bar and my answer to that is no don't get the touch bar if all you care about is the processor because you can get the macbook escape the 13 inch without touch bar and you can add 300 dollars to it which is built to order it brings it up to 1799 which is the cost of the base touch bar configuration and that is a i know the gigahertz looks lower than on the base of the uh, of the touch bar because it's a 2.5 but it's a 2.5 gigahertz i7 that turbo boosts up to 4 gigahertz that is probably going to be a faster processor than the processor in the touch bar, the base touch bar. Okay. So unless, you, unless you're planning on buying a touch bar you don't want and having it be a high-end one with a high-end build-to-order processor, I think if you don't care about the touch bar, you're better off just buying the, the, uh, the MacBook Escape and maybe spending that extra $300 on the faster, on the i7 processor. But that depends on what, how you're going to use it for. Just bear in mind, you will lose touch bar, uh, touch ID, and you will also only have two Thunderbolt 3 ports. So it's just something to bear in mind. But, right, uh, right. Yeah, if it, I was making yeah. that choice right now, I think I would go without the touch bar on this, on this model, personally. Yeah, me too. Chris wants to know, do you use a screen protector on your iPad with the Apple Pencil? I'm worried that it might scratch, but I don't want to lose screen sensitivity. So no, I have never, and this is absolutely nothing to worry about. These devices are made to work together. The Apple Pencil does not scratch the iPad screen. I have used an Apple Pencil on an iPad for 18 months, and there has never been a scratch given to the screen from the Pencil. Like, I would not worry about this at all. Would you agree? Yeah, agreed. Yeah, it's yep. like, if it scratched that screen, Apple would be the worst company ever, right? Like, that would be such a bad decision like just to not bother testing it well enough that you wouldn't know that it does not scratch it you don't need to worry about it paul asked if i will upgrade to high sierra um slowly i mean i just upgraded my imac to sierra and i'm having some slight issues regarding audio which i didn't have before sierra and i upgraded it to sierra because there was some software that i needed to use that had to have sierra i would still not be using sierra if i didn't need that software and this is because, for the exact reason that I'm having some weird audio bugs right now, I don't like to upgrade this, the machine that I record the shows on. Because if it's working fine, don't jeopardize that. Because I don't care about the Mac enough that I have to be on the latest and greatest. I'm not using it for fun, right? Like, I'm using it to sit down, record and edit and publish a show, and then I go back to my iPad again. So having just the most stable machine is all I care about. I do security updates, 
but I, I'm not fussed about I, about macOS feature updates now. So I'm frustrated that Sierra has introduced some bugs that uh, Yosemite didn't have. Wait, was I using Yosemite? What was I using before this, Jason? I can never remember the names now. El Capitan. El Capitan. El Capitan had no problems for me, and Sierra has some problems. So, well, hey, this is why I don't upgrade. That's right, and yet you do upgrade every week. I know, but but I will upgrade everything else as quickly as I can, just not this machine. I will I will almost certainly upgrade to High Sierra because I'll be High using Sierra. the betas over the summer because mm-hmm. high um because that's the uh you know, I need to know about it, yep. right? But I did, you know, for a while with Yosemite, I I think I had to like reboot into the previous version in order to record podcasts because there were horrible USB audio bugs. And so that that's the thing that remains. I, I, a question is, can I use this for my day-to-day system or do I have to sequester it? And that, you know, there's no way to tell now that like literally I'll find that out by trying it out and discovering whether it's a disaster or not. And there's no way to tell because it'll be some bug somewhere that might get introduced that um, if it doesn't get fixed, precludes me from using it. Uh, Mickey wants to know, is it possible to use the iPad Pro smart connector for docking an iPad Pro like the Nintendo Switch? Jason? Yeah, if there there's um, there's a thing called the Logitech Base that's a hundred bucks, which did not get a great review from you. <laughs> I don't understand quite why you'd want it, but it is a piece of metal that you with a smart connector on it, and so you put it somewhere, and then you drop an iPad onto it, and it's connected, and that means that it's uh, charging. Unfortunately, you know, it doesn't really offer other things. It's not like there's a full featured dock that. Um, that uh, will improve your connectivity in some way. It doesn't attach to a keyboard or anything like that. It's literally just a a sort of slow, because it's via the smart connector, charger for your iPad. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't see the point, but it does exist. If you need that. And, and, it, and, it's, and it's one, one, um, one angle. So it's not like it's an adjustable angle. It's just a piece of metal in a curve. So uh, it's an interesting idea. I don't really, it does not appeal to me at all. But, uh, and it's not like they make, there's nothing that is you drop in to the smart connector and you get video out or something like that. That I don't think it, it's smart connector can do the high trans, transfer of data anyway. There may be, somebody may have made some dock, I don't know, that uses lightning to, to like you pop it in somewhere and things happen, but basically no. So, no. Yeah, the docking like the Nintendo Switch, I think what Mikey or Mickey is relating to is just the easy put in, put out, because you doesn't click in. You just drop it into the dock. So that's what yeah. the Logitech base would provide you, that there isn't like a lightning port that you need to find. It just finds its way in itself. And will charge from and that charge. very slowly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Gary wants to know, what are your favorite iOS games for long plane rides? So... Obviously, I can speak to this. Uh, I like games that I can play for long stretches that are simple whilst listening to podcasts is typical for me. So my kind of long-term games for this are Threes, Alto's Adventure, and Mini Metro. They are games that you can play kind of without a lot of thought for long periods of time. Um, I was playing some Monument Valley 2 on the plane, but uh, that's not necessarily something that I would recommend for the way that I usually play stuff, because Monument Valley 2, you should listen to the audio, and I like to listen to podcasts when I'm on the plane. Yeah. Um, I, 
am taking my time with Monument Valley 2, which, by the way, I am so excited is available. Uh, what a great surprise, and uh, I'm very excited to play more of it. But uh, they are the games that I play on planes. What do, you, do you play any games on planes, Jason? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is I don't games is not a thing I do on planes. Okay, generally, I get that. I, on a plane. I am uh, editing a podcast. I am mm-hmm. reading a book, or I am watching a movie or a TV show. But playing games on planes, nah, not for me. That's not that's not the snail way. No. All right, that is it for this week's episode. As always, you can send in your questions for us to answer at the end of the show with hashtag AskUpgrade and our beginning of the show question, which is hashtag SnellTalk. Remember, SnellTalk is for just esoteric questions. If you're looking for more in-detail questions about technology, keep those for AskUpgrade. I know we have lots of hashtags and lots of questions, and I appreciate every single one of you that sends in one every week or whenever you do them. Uh, I really appreciate it. Please continue to send those in because it helps us helps us make the show. So thank you for that. And also, thank you for listening. If you listen to all of the show or part of the show or you skip certain parts of the show, we'll know soon. Uh, but I still want to thank you for doing it anyway. Um, if you want to find Jason online, you can find him at sixcolors.com and he is at jsnell on Twitter and, of course, at The Incomparable as well, theincomparable.com. I am at iMike, I-M-Y-K-E. Thanks to Encapsula, MailRoute, and Blue Apron for supporting this week's show. And thank you, as always, for listening. We'll be back next time. Until then, say goodbye, Jason Snell. Goodbye, everybody.